Arizona seems to make it relatively easy to follow the money when it comes to government spending. I'm Mark Brody. On today's Here and Now, I'll talk to the head of Arizona PERG about its new report on spending transparency. Also, thousands of Arizonans lost their food stamp benefits this month. We'll find out why and what's being done to help. Three-quarters of the Valley's pro sports teams could be in the market for a new place to play. We'll talk about the potential impacts on downtown Phoenix of these possible comings and goings. The 2016 presidential election has seen its share of non-political correctness. Is this the end of PC? The author of a paper on this weighs in. And the U.S. and Cuba have been normalizing their relations. How One Valley Museum is celebrating that. That and more is all ahead on KJZZ's Here and Now. A check of this hour's news is first. Good morning. It's here and now on KJZZ. I'm Mark Brody in Phoenix, sitting in today for Steve Goldstein. Later this hour, how a city's design could impact its residents' health and downtown Phoenix could be in for a stadium shuffle. But first, when it comes to being able to follow the money, Arizona does reasonably well. That's according to the 2016 version of a government spending transparency report compiled by the Arizona Public Interest Research Group Education Fund. Joining me now to talk about it is Diane Brown, the group's executive director. And Diane, what specifically does Arizona do well? Arizona does a number of things well when it comes to providing transparent information on government spending online. A couple of the best areas for Arizona include the checkbook level detail that it provides in regards to government agencies, government spending overall. Arizona also provides a one-stop shop, meaning that if you're trying to find information On government spending transparency, you can go to openbooks.az.gov and be able to look by a particular agency or entity and follow that particular transaction all the way through without being directed to another website and then not being able to get back to the original one. Arizona also has information that is downloadable, which enables researchers, concerned citizens, to be able to look at various spending categories, areas of revenue, and to compare and contrast. Did you find that there were particular things at which the state needs to improve? The state needs to improve when it comes to providing information for economic development subsidies online. The state legislature needs to provide the ability for the Department of Administration to collect that data and then to post that data online. Right now, taxpayers are not provided with information to know if a company is being lured to the state what the promises made are and whether or not those promises are being kept, which means that we as taxpayers may not know whether it was a good deal or whether it was something that fell short. Is this mostly Arizona Commerce Authority money? No. I mean, we don't know, I guess, is the real answer. Um, By not having information on economic development subsidies, we don't know what 
all the subsidies are that the legislature may have put forth, that the Commerce Authority may have put forth, and we don't know whether those are in the best interest of the taxpayer. The Arizona Commerce Authority has provided information to the public that the Department of Administration posts online, but there is a limit to the information that can be given to the public due to restrictions from the Arizona legislature. The report gives Arizona some props for including cities, towns, and some school districts in its online portals. Is that something that is common among the states? Um, Arizona deserves a lot of credit for really being on the cutting edge when it comes to providing information on local municipality spending. Arizona, a few years ago, started to provide this information, and this year we highlighted Arizona as one of the states that has continued to expand what is provided online when it comes to municipal government spending. We know that individuals often pay most attention to what's happening in their backyard, and by being able to view both what is happening on a local level and on a state level, it can provide a taxpayer with much better information to know how their money is being spent. Outside of the general principle that taxpayers should have a sense of of where their money is being spent, do you get the sense that Arizona residents actually use this information? I mean, are there people who look at this website and try to follow where money is going? Or is it just a matter of it's good that it's there, so if somebody wants to use it, it is there? From talking with the state comptroller, we understand that a number of individuals do view the website and look at various expenses. It isn't a website that probably comes up first in a Google search. However, we think it's important for the word to get out so that taxpayers can find out where their money is going, and also that government officials can look at various expenses, look at ways to save money, and look at ways across entities in the state to get the best bang for our buck when it comes to bidding and other contracts. Diane Brown is executive director of the Arizona Public Interest Research Group Education Fund. We'll post the report at kjzz.org. Diane, thank you. Thanks so much, Mark. Appreciate it. Earlier this month, thousands of Arizonans lost their food stamp benefits, known as SNAP, or the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. To find out why and who's been affected, I'm joined by Angie Rogers, President and CEO of the Association of Arizona Food Banks. Angie, thank you for being here. What exactly happened? Well, thanks, Mark, for having me. Um, So as part of federal legislation back in 1996, when we had welfare reform, there was a little small provision in there about work requirements. So individuals who are between the ages of 18 and 49 must be working in order to receive SNAP benefits. However, in 2008, because of the recession, um, they allowed uh, states to apply for waivers towards that because there were no jobs, obviously, available for individuals to go to. Um, Those waivers have existed from 2008 until the present day. Um, Up until 2016, here in Arizona, we have elected those waivers, and now, starting in January for Maricopa County, will no longer be eligible. Why is that? 
Um, well, because of our unemployment rate, because we have started to enter that recovery period, obviously we have more jobs now than we did in 2008, and we want to encourage people to go to work. And uh, so that's the opportunity that we have now today. So it's kind of a good news, bad news situation. It is a good news, bad news. I mean, we're definitely encouraging individuals to go to work if there are jobs that they can get to. What we remain concerned about is about 10,000 individuals that um, probably have significant barriers to employment, substance abuse, homelessness, um, mental illness, potentially just even lack of transportation to get to jobs, um, and how are they going to find these jobs and be able to have the skills necessary to enter the workforce? If you can ballpark it for us, how many people lost their benefits this month? Um, Effective April 1st, almost 10,000 individuals will be not receiving SNAP benefits. Now, there will be other opportunities to work with them so they can call in and they can um, reach out to the Department of Economic Security to get their benefits restored, and we encourage them to do that. We also have an emergency food bank network, but 10,000 individuals additionally into that network um, is going to be a strain on our on our system. And are most of those folks in Maricopa County? All of those folks at this time are in Maricopa County. The waivers will go um, away in Pima County, effective uh, July 1st, and in um, Yavapai County in September. Do you have a sense of how many people in those counties will be losing their benefits? It's about 5,000 in Pima County and another 2,000 in Yavapai. So roughly, I mean, a little less than 20,000 people statewide, by the end of the summer, will have lost benefits that they had been getting. Potentially. Absolutely. Is there, are there resources? You mentioned uh, DES. I mean, are there, what, what can these folks do? Well, we're definitely encouraging folks to to reach out, to address some of those barriers that they need to do, but also reaching out to um, employer partners and, and others who might get them skills and training necessary to get jobs. Um, there aren't enough of those, and that's what we as advocates have been concerned about, is there's not going to be enough training opportunities. There's not going to be enough jobs even to hire individuals who may not have worked in a few years or individuals who um, may have felony records or others that might preclude them from employment. Do those kinds of training programs tend to be privately run or are they state-run job training programs? There's a combination of both, obviously, working in both in public-private partnerships, and, and we're excited about that. But like I said, not enough right now. What have you heard from some of the folks who have lost their benefits? And who are who are these folks? And like, what are their situations? I think um, because we've been operating under different set of rules for so many years, the first reaction was confusion. I'm not sure what you're asking me to do. And because um, individuals don't stay on SNAP for a very long period of time, usually less than 12 months, nobody on the program right now was probably subject to the work requirements that existed back uh, in 2007. So confusion was the first uh, reaction. I think the second one was what exactly does work always have to do with employment or with um, with feeding myself? So I think, again, introducing a work requirement or really what is a time limit into this is confusing for folks. So we're just trying to educate them. It's interesting. You know, we hear a lot about, you know, there are jobs coming, but what kinds of jobs are they? Are they well-paying jobs? Are they minimum wage jobs? Do you find that even folks who are able, who maybe have been on SNAP, who are able to get some kind of employment is it enough to, to feed themselves and their families? Not usually. Um, certainly, we, we know that families enter and exit employment fairly frequently in, in this area. So they might have a job for two or three months, but then they're laid off, or they might have a job that um, keeps them um, employed, but it's 20 or 25 hours a week. And at $9, $10 an hour, that's not enough to feed a family. So are you finding that a lot more and more people are, are choosing to, or required, I guess would be the better way to say it, to have multiple jobs? I think just to survive 
individuals are required to, to either have multiple employment opportunities or to return to school. They're definitely uh, doing what they can to survive, uh, given that we do not have a safety net program in the state. How are the state's food banks handling this? Um, well, we're still meeting with them to kind of see what that impact looked like uh, as it you know, was only 12 days ago that we started feeling this. Um, but we've started getting calls from individuals who say, you know, I, I tried to use my benefits at the grocery store and they were declined. Can you help me? And um, our emergency food network can give them some assistance, two to three, maybe three to four days worth of food. But um, again, the volume is what we're concerned about, particularly concentrated in certain communities in Maricopa County. Are food banks able and prepared to help folks beyond three to four days? I mean, are, are, are they potentially on their own after that? Uh, at this time, I would say no. Typically, we don't have the resources to be able to stay in an individual for the entire month. So no. Um, but obviously, we have a lot of generous Arizona donors, and so we would encourage them to continue their contributions. But we're definitely concerned about what this could mean, not only for Maricopa County, but potentially for other individuals who, as our government safety net continues to fray, what's going to happen to folks who just fall through the cracks? Since this was something that you guys kind of saw coming, you knew it was going to be happening, were you able to sort of maybe ask donors, hey, we have all these potential people who are going to be coming to us in the next you know, weeks and months. We could really use a, a slightly larger stockpile right now to help sort of get them through this transition. I, I think we definitely have seen some generosity from our our, our donation partners, whether that be grocery stores and large retailers, all the way down to Boy Scouts troops that are, are donating cans of food. So we're very grateful to all of them for that. Um, I just think, again, the volume is going to be substantial and um, individuals who may not understand what the notices look like and, and need an education about what the requirements are. So we're trying to do it on both sides, um, educating our donors and educating our clients. For the folks who lost their benefits this month in Maricopa County and may in future months in, in other counties, is there any hope of, of them getting their those benefits back at some point? They can. Um, obviously, if they can meet an exemption, so if they identify that they are caring for an elderly parent or a disabled member or if they are disabled themselves, obviously that would preclude them um, from having to meet the requirement. Um, so we definitely believe there's still those opportunities if they can call into DES, give them that information, tell them about their circumstances circumstances that would um, have this uh, uh, requirement not apply to them. Did you run into instances where folks maybe fell into one of those categories but still maybe had their benefit card declined or got a notice that their benefits were going to be cut off? It's a little early to tell, but um, initially what we thought the um, the requirement was going to impact about 21,000 people in Arizona. And as you can see now, about half of those individuals either went out and found a job, which is great, um, or they were able to meet one of those exemption categories. And so we're, we're, we're recognizing that it's probably a large number of individuals who the policy did not apply to. Six months from now or a year from now, what do you think the future holds for, for some of these people? I and mean, what, what do you think the food bank situation is going to be? What do you think the, the benefit situation and the ability of some of these, these individuals and families to feed themselves will look like? Yeah, I think I remained about um, concerned about a number of things. One, for clients. How are they going to put food on the table? What are they going to do to feed their families? I think I'm also concerned about the impact on food banks and what we can be doing to help those families. Emergency food is not a way to sustain yourself. Um, but I'm also concerned about the economic impact. Um, just this month alone um, was about $1.2 million that won't be spent in grocery stores and won't put cashiers to work. And so what's that ripple effect going to look like for the rest of our community? 
Andy, Angie Rogers is the president and CEO of the Association of Arizona Food Banks. Angie, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. And still to come on KJZZ's Here and Now, downtown Phoenix could be in for some sporting changes over the next several years, and how this country's normalizing relationship with Cuba is music to One Valley Museum's ears. That and more still ahead as Here and Now continues. KJZZ is supported by the Phoenix Symphony, presenting ABBA the concert. The Swedish cover band Waterloo performs hits like Take a Chance on Me, Mamma Mia, Dancing Queen, and more. Live with the symphony. Tickets at phoenixsymphony.org. This is Here and Now on KJZZ. Stay with us for News Hour from the BBC today at 1. Taking a look at some temperatures around the state right now, 72 degrees in Tucson, it's 56 in Flagstaff, 63 in Prescott, and 81 degrees in Yuma. Well, businesses today are doing more to create loyal customers. Grow your business by partnering with KJZZ's business member program and connect with listeners who rely on KJZZ. It's your opportunity to make a philanthropic donation to this important community resource. Visit businessmember.kjzz.org or call 480-774-8274. Right now in Phoenix, with 32% relative humidity, we have clear skies and 77 degrees at 1123. It's here and now on KJZZ. I'm Mark Brody in Phoenix. How important is urban design to the health of that city's residents? New research looks into that question. It looked at 14 world cities, including those in Belgium, New Zealand, Mexico, and the U.S. Mark Adams, an assistant professor in the School of Nutrition and Health Promotion at ASU, is one of the researchers, and he joins me to talk about the study. Mark, first off, what were you looking to find out? So um, there had been uh, many studies that have looked at the relationship between neighborhood design and physical activity in the past, Um, but most of those studies have been conducted in the U.S. or Australia or parts of Europe. So um, this study tried to expand essentially the the range of cities that that were included um, and also tried to uh, make sure that everything that was done across cities, such as all the measurement tools, were all standardized so we couldn't um, you know, attribute any of the, the findings to measurement error, essentially. So it would make sense that, for example, in cities with more bike lanes, people would use them and, and they would have that aspect of, of health and exercise that would help them out. But it seems like this research went beyond that. Correct. Yeah, we looked at um, dozens of factors, uh, residential density, intersection connectivity, Um, We looked at access to public transit and to parks. So we looked at a whole host of features. And what exactly did you find? So um, this study found that um, essentially uh, residential density and access to public transportation along with parks could help explain up to 90 minutes of the physical activity guideline, which is about um, 60% of the guideline. Is that just a matter of, well, if there's a bus stop over here, instead of hopping into my car in my driveway at my house, I have to walk X number of blocks to the bus station or the subway station or whatever, and that counts as exercise. Exactly. That, and once you um, get off the bus or the the light rail, um, you're going to probably walk to a destination um, and then walk between destinations and then ultimately return and do the same thing. 
What role do parks play? I mean, we hear so much, especially here in the Phoenix area, about green spaces, the need to you know let people get out and run around and burn off steam. I mean, is that is that basically what you found as far as as far as open space? It, what we found was that it wasn't necessarily the size of the parks, but the number of parks in your in your neighborhood that um, resulted in improvements in physical activity. Is it too simplistic to say that if there are hiking trails, if there are parks and other kinds of paved trails, for example, if uh, there are bike lanes, that people will just use them and naturally be healthier? Like, is there more to it than that? I think there there is in some respects, but there isn't. Um, those facilities, that infrastructure needs to be present in order to promote it. If we tried to promote physical activity in the absence of those things, then we wouldn't be very effective. There would be no place to go and, and walk or to hike or to cycle. So um, the sequence matters, I think. And so so that might help explain why so many public health programs targeting physical activity haven't done a very good job. The infrastructure just wasn't there. So you need the, you need the stuff there for people to do first before you try to encourage them to actually do it. I think so, yes. So what does that mean for a city like Phoenix, which has a lot of open space, but you know has some public transportation, but not a robust system in a place like Chicago or New York or some of the more denser East Coast cities? Where does, where does Phoenix fall in all of this? It's a good question. Um, uh, the study that I was involved in didn't look at Phoenix per se, but um, you know, Prop 104, for example, um, is going to expand the availability and access of public transit, um, improve uh, the bus frequency and uh, longer hours, um, in- increase the range for the light rails, uh, r- the, the light rail uh, uh, system. So. Um, I think we're on the right footing to make some improvements going forward. Do you find that some of these things are easier to do in newer cities like Phoenix, where they are where they are still sort of building out the infrastructure, as opposed to, I think, a city like New York, which has its infrastructure and doesn't have a lot of space necessarily to expand it or change it. Um, so in newer cities, what we find is that they're they're designed mainly to move automobiles. And in older cities, they were designed mainly before the advent of the car. So um, the older cities tend to have a better backbone for promoting walking and cycling and whatnot. In the newer cities, um, I I think different strategies are needed. Um, When you have cul-de-sacs in your neighborhood um, and you don't have a lot of access to public transit or there isn't just anything to walk to in terms of shops or services, then um, we need to create connections between neighborhoods and those those types of things. So I guess, is it easier or harder for a place like Phoenix then to do that? Because there are a lot of neighborhoods here with cul-de-sacs, and there are a lot of areas that are kind of far away from the light rail or from a, a major bus line. So I guess, how do you, how do city leaders here go about doing that? I'm not sure if it's easier um, because a lot of the infrastructure has been designed already around automobiles. Um, In some ways, it might even be more difficult, um, hard to tear out a freeway um, and and put in um, bike lanes or or bike trails or something like that. But but in terms of uh, improving the existing walkability, I think we need to if there's going to be any future investment, need to reconsider whether we just want to focus on the the moving cars um, and 
focus on the economic impact or probably in the environmental impact and consider how health might be affected and specifically physical activity. I'm glad you brought up the idea of investment because presumably anything that cities would have to add, things that they don't necessarily have right now, will cost some amount of money. And I'm curious if you were able to look at sort of where residents of different cities, where they put stuff like this as far as priorities, like on the list of things that cities spend money on, where do residents want them to put ways for them to sort of help maintain health? Um, In this study, we were not able to look at that. But generally speaking, um, in terms of the features that we did look at, um, most European cities ranked much higher, and so did the Asian cities, compared to um, the U.S. cities that were in the study. As more valley cities sort of play to the idea of density. Scottsdale talks talks up its urban downtown core. Mesa, to an extent, Gilbert, to an extent, does it as well. Does that maybe give you a little more optimism that it's not just Phoenix in the Valley that is able or willing maybe to do some of these things that you're outlining? Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm really excited. I think um, Mesa is a great example of a place that has done a tremendous amount to improve the walkability of its, uh, of its main street. Um, the light rail extension, for example, um, the grid bike share program that just uh, started um, there, um, the redevelopment of that whole um, uh, main street uh, area, um, I think is is going to pay off in the long run. Do you see some of these projects as more long-term projects for, for the Valley and, and its cities as opposed to like, we're going to do it and it's going to be done in six months or a year? Yeah, I think you have to take a longer-term perspective on something like this. Um, urban design uh, is, is, you know, looking out 20 years is not unusual. And do you get the sense that city leaders are really paying attention to this? I mean, is this on their on their radar screens? Ten years ago, 15 years ago, I would have said no. But uh, recently, things have really changed. Um, you know, it, it's exciting to see what's happening in Phoenix. We have something called a Complete Streets Advisory Board, um, where uh, for, for many streets in, in Phoenix, when it comes down to um, resurfacing them or, or looking at the sidewalks or the infrastructure, we're now going to consider pedestrians and cyclists on par with uh, automobiles. And that's a matter in in many areas of narrowing the streets down, right, and making wider sidewalks and putting maybe some bike lanes and some planters there as a division between where people are on the road and people are on the sidewalk. Exactly. There there will be uh, some of that, yes. Mark Adams is an assistant professor in the School of Nutrition and Health Promotion at ASU. Mark, thank you. Thank you. Three of the Valley's four pro sports teams could be in the market for a new place to play. Coyotes ownership has talked about potentially leaving Gila River Arena in Glendale. The Suns say they need improvements at Talking Stick Resort Arena in downtown Phoenix. And next door, the Diamondbacks are currently in a dispute with Maricopa County about renovations at Chase Field. So the region's sports scene could be shifting, and joining me to talk about it is Don Keuth, president of Phoenix Community Alliance. And Don, first off, how concerned are you that the D-backs could leave Chase Field? Well, you know, you can never say never, but but I think um, that there is ways to negotiate a, an agreement that would work for all. I think some of the discussion that's going on about possibly the city picking up a role in this um, may lead to a logical conclusion. But um, certainly, I, I think it, it, for it to not be downtown would be a would be a huge loss to the downtown. What would it mean for downtown Phoenix to not have the D-backs playing eighty-one games there every year? Well, you miss, uh, you know, a couple million people <laughs> that 
that uh, that come down and and uh, you know with the expansion and um, um, all the development that's occurred, uh, I, I think there's opportunities now that didn't necessarily exist back in the early days of people staying downtown and taking advantage of bars and restaurants and other venues downtown. And, and to not to have that uh, number of people uh, would be uh, would be a real loss. What do you think if the Diamondbacks weren't using Chase Field anymore? I mean, that's clearly pretty good real estate. I mean, what do you think would happen to that land? Well, you know, if you think about it, it probably encompasses about eight city blocks. And, um, you know, one may argue that uh, maybe there's a redevelopment opportunity there. But uh, uh, I, I think that's, you know, getting pretty far ahead of the game right now. But, but certainly, uh, any time a venue like that were to, to leave, unless there was a way you might be able to convert it to something, you know, for soccer or, or who knows what. In addition to the potential economics of it, is there sort of a, would there be a psychological dent in, in the city if downtown didn't have the Valley's major league team anymore? I think so. I, I, th- I th- you know, I think that um, we've seen, you know, if we look at some of our, our uh, peer cities like Denver and, and San Diego and others and San Francisco where their stadiums are right downtown, and, and I think it adds a lot of energy to, uh, to the downtown area, and um, uh, that would be a big loss. Among the other Valley teams that are looking at, at potentially new arenas, the Suns and the Coyotes, the Coyotes are, are looking to potentially be leaving Glendale. The Suns have been talking about a new arena. What do you make of the idea of having those two sharing a space again, potentially uh, in downtown Phoenix? Well, I think if they could come to a financial agreement, that would be great. Uh, you know, the last time when the Coyotes left the downtown, it was really there wasn't a way to work out how to share the uh, the revenues from suites and things like that that led to them looking for their own house, but if something like that could be worked out, I mean that just adds another you know forty uh, event nights um, of activity, which would be great. Do you think that it is more likely that the teams would move into a renovated uh, talking stick resort arena, or do you think that they would need an entirely new building? Um, that's a good question. Um, I think part of it is what would it take to renovate to make it work? As you may recall, one of the um, challenges with the Coyotes in the first place is is the way the arena was built, which was really basketball-centric, and it's very uh, very close in. You know, the seats are close to, to the floor. It created sightline issues for hockey. And so there were several, oh, I don't know, two, 3,000 seats that basically were unavailable for hockey because you couldn't see the whole um, the whole ice. Could you fix that problem, and what would it take, and what would it do um, to uh, ongoing uh, activity uh, would be a good question. It might be, in the long run, it might be easier just to build a new facility. Well, given the amount of development that has happened in downtown Phoenix since the Coyotes left downtown for Glendale, there's a lot less empty space down there now. Is there is there room for a new arena for them? Would there be potentially room for two arenas if that's what it came to downtown? Well, I, I know where we could put one. <laughs> I, I've, you know, and I think this has been talked about uh, uh, on numerous occasions lately that the South Hall of Civic, uh, the Convention Center uh, could be a, a viable uh, spot over there, which would put it right across from Chase Field. It still keeps them 
basically uh, um, adjacent to their parking facilities. Uh, it could add an, uh, an element to the convention center for giant plenary sessions for some shows. And, uh, you know, I don't, I don't think, you know, at one time when we, when we did the expansion, we looked at eventually expanding what we built on the north side of Washington to the south side of Washington. But that world's changed since the, re- the, the recession, and, and I'm not sure we need that space. So the, a use like, like this could be pretty interesting. Do you get the sense that if there is to be a new building built, or, or frankly, even if they renovate the existing arena, is this something that, that the teams are going to have to pay for? I mean, does, does the city or are there other entities that have money to kick in for this? Well, you know, the, the, the arena was originally built as a, as a public-private partnership between the Suns and the city, um, and, and uh, it was a pretty good model, and I think if there was a way to replicate that model in some way, shape, or form, I think that would be uh, uh, the best way to get it done. What do you think would happen to the land where where the arena is now? I mean, do you think that's parking lot potential? Is is there a condo oh God, don't something say else? That. No, no, no. <laughs> Sorry, no, no, no parking lots. <laughs> what, what would you ideally? What would you like to see there? Well, you know, you could um, you you could do a, a significant amount of mixed use development there, uh, uh, housing, office, retail. Um, given its location right on light rail, um, you know, it has has significant potential. Would having three professional sports teams in downtown Phoenix give the city more bragging rights than it has now, do you think? That's a good question. Um, Probably. I'm not sure how many cities have three professional franchises in their downtown area. Can you remember a time when this many, either in Phoenix or somewhere else, where this many pro sports teams were potentially looking for new places to play? All at the same time? Yeah. No, I don't. I, I can't recall. <laughs> I mean, what do you what do you make of it? Well, you know, it it um, timing is everything. Um, <laughs> usually, what what you what you see is you know, as an example, is just recently happened in Los Angeles with trying to get uh, to get uh, pro football back there, and and all the discussion about. Um, you know who's going to be able to build the, the two billion dollar stadium or something like that? Um, but to see it, you know, in Atlanta just is going through um, building a new stadium for uh, for the Braves, um, but multiples. I'm that's kind of a new one. In terms of the overall priorities of of the city and of this part of the city of downtown Phoenix, where would you rank? having sports teams and being able to build venues for them to play? Well, you know, it's, it's, it's all part of the complete package where, where uh, you know, you want to have the, uh, the entertainment venues and, and uh, you know, it's, it's sports, it's concerts, it's theater. Uh, you want to have uh, the uh, educational aspects, which we have with ASU and U of A. Uh, uh, we're we're seeing a huge influx of of residential and and now you know with the announcement recently of the grocery store that level of retail, it's just it's it's kind of the growing up of downtown and um, if you step back and look at it, the more things you can have in your basket, uh, I think the more viable and more um, exciting you become. So I want you to look into your crystal ball for just a minute here, and we're not going to hold you to anything. We're not we're not uh, putting any money on this or anything. But what do you think the sports landscape in downtown Phoenix looks like in five years? 
Well, I, uh, ideally, I'd like to see a new Suns Arena that, that would also include the Coyotes. And then um, some resolution to uh, Chase Field, be it, um, you know, the city picking, uh, picking it up uh, to manage it and the, and the Diamondbacks being able to potentially renovate it to, to fit their needs uh, moving forward. Don Kuth is president of Phoenix Community Alliance. Don, thank you very much. Thank you. And still to come on KJZZ's Here and Now, has this year's presidential campaign brought the end of political correctness and how One Valley Museum is celebrating America's newly normalizing relationship with Cuba? That's all ahead as Here and Now continues. KJZZ is supported by the Children's Museum of Phoenix, featuring summer camps immersed in art, science, dramatic play, and literature exploration. Summer camp registration now open at childrensmuseumofphoenix.org. Good morning. This is KJZZ's Here and Now on 91.5 and kjzz.org. Mostly sunny today for the Valley. We're looking for a high near 86 degrees. Sunny and a little bit warmer tomorrow, up to 88. And then we'll see a bit of a cooling trend starting on Friday, with things dropping down into the upper 70s and a slight chance for some rain on Friday evening. In Valley traffic right now, southbound on the State Route 51. Watch out for a crash blocking the shoulder at Glendale Avenue. NPR's Here and Now is coming up at 12. We'll hear about coal giant Peabody Energy filing for bankruptcy, one of a string of recent coal company bankruptcies. Stay with KJZZ. Here and Now from Boston starts at noon. Clear skies over Phoenix right now, and it's 77 degrees at 1142. It's here and now on KJZZ. I'm Mark Brody in Phoenix. You don't have to be paying very close attention to the presidential campaign to notice that political correctness seems to be taking a back seat. Candidates are talking in ways that might result in kids getting their mouths washed out with soap. Robert Folsom has noticed this. He's written an article called Why Trump, Why Now? The Violent Death of Political Correctness in the Socionomist. He's a senior editor at Elliott Wave International and a contributor to the Socionomics Institute. So, Robert, what got you interested in looking into this? What got me interested in it was how, among other indicators, political correctness uh, tends to trend, or there's some evidence that it tends to trend, along with social mood. It was uh, a bottom-up sentiment that began to appear and take hold in the 1980s. Uh, It showed up in codes of conduct on college campuses and in workplaces and became pretty deeply entrenched uh, in in the late 1990s. And then into the 2000s and and certainly into uh, the political mood today, Political correctness has been challenged. It's, it's a boogeyman for a, a lot of negative attitudes that people have. And what we try to do here is look for indicators of that kind. And uh, political correctness was, was so obvious, it's, it's so conspicuous, that we began to look at it more, uh, more carefully and, and attempt to study it. And you also found that there are some economic factors that go along with this, which I found fascinating. But the more I thought about it, it seemed, yeah, that kind of makes sense. Uh, It really does. It really does. Uh, One of the primary, perhaps the primary trend indicator we look at is the stock market because it's so immediate, right? There's so many people who participate 
in stock buying and selling and you get the results so immediately that that's the first one we look at we also look at the economy at, at GDP and unemployment and some of, some of the other economic data but it's very very interesting how often you can see uh, a turn in a trend or uh, a trend accelerate in one of these indicators and then you'll start to see a lot of movement in others and that was the case with political correctness and the economy for you know for example in uh, in 2007 when the markets and the economy started to tank uh, that that's when we saw uh, a whole host of other indicators show show a similar uh, movement or increase in trend political correctness was among them is it too simplistic to say that when people are angry or frustrated or just kind of ticked off that that is one time when political correctness kind of goes away a little bit or people are maybe more drawn to, to politicians or other leaders who, who will not be politically correct? Sure. It, c- connecting the dots it can be oversimplifying anytime you attempt to do it, but uh, you, you follow the evidence where it takes you. And there was, there's, there's plenty of indication, even before the 2016 presidential cycle uh, became the thing that, that we see it to be now, uh, there, there were indications that political correctness was a very, very big bogeyman or an expression of dissatisfaction that people just put their arms around, angry voters or people who are left out of the economy or feel excluded in whatever way attribute their problem in part to political correctness, the limits on speech that it represents, um, and, and how you know, they're supposed to behave in a way that other people uh, impose on them. In your mind, is it possible for one to speak their mind and say what they're really thinking while still sort of maintaining some amount of political correctness, or at the very least, not necessarily offending people? Uh, it can be. Um, all, all political discourse should be civil. You, you, you need to be able, in some way, to detach yourself emotionally from whatever the position is you're, you're taking if you're going to talk to someone about it. Otherwise, it turns into a shouting match very quickly. Uh, I, I think what political correctness does is, in a sense, represent a very old tension in American politics between the, the ideals of, of free speech and the American ideal of inclusion right, e pluribus unum. Those two traditions in politics go back to the very beginning of American history, but they're in tension. You know, you, you, you see sometimes uh, e pluribus unum seems to be the stronger sentiment, and sometimes free speech seems to be the, the stronger sentiment. And it's in the political arena where, where they have to intersect that it can get ugly, and, and we're at such a point right now how do we find our way out of that? Oh, I, that, see, you're asking me to predict the future, and that, that becomes very difficult. I mean, my, my starting point r- really uh, is what I said a moment ago, and uh, it is that your, your discourse has to be civil. You, you have to assume good faith to some extent, and in the absence of that, you can't find a way out. And, and that, that really feels uh, you know, day-to-day kind of where we are right now. Uh, and it's a reflection of uh, political polarization. Uh, peop- there's there's a, a whole host of studies. I I, uh, I gave a talk just this past weekend at a, at a conference, 
and I talked about how extreme political polarization has become now. There's, there's just a lot of data from uh, organizations like Gallup and, and Pew Research, and people are just clustering on opposite ends of the spectrum, and they can't hear each other. They, their, their, their ability to, to talk even the same language uh, seems more and more remote. One of the comments that the Pew study made in summarizing its research is that uh, it's as if they're two separate tribes and their, their attitudes and uh, the things that matter to them uh, look less and less alike. And it's, it's very discouraging. But, you know, just as much as I'm able to answer your question, to, to get yourself out of that box, you have to talk and you have to talk with as much civil discourse as you can bring to the, to the discussion. Well, do you think that the death of political correctness in whatever form it takes also necessarily has to be the death of political civility, or can civility live on even if people are not being politically correct with each other? It can live on, but it has to be purposeful. You, you have to recognize that when you go too far with political correctness, people do feel as if their speech is being handcuffed. But the people who want to speak their mind, who want to, to have um, a candid, honest conversation, need to realize that people on the other side of that discussion may have grievances that are, that are very real and that language matters. And if you, don't, if you don't understand that and recognize that and use language well to advance the discussion, not, not to grind an axe or, or to, to verbally beat other people into the ground, then you might as well not have the discussion at all. It's a lot easier to, to become a member of one tribe or the other. It's easier to do that than to talk to people uh, about issues where you may not agree. If, if you understand that, then take in news sources or have conversations with people who don't think like you do. You can't, you can't grow or uh, make your world a bigger place uh, w- without hearing from people who come from a different perspective. Robert Folsom is senior editor at Elliott Wave International and a contributor to the Socionomics Institute. His article, Why Trump, Why Now? The Violent Death of Political Correctness, is in The Socionomist. Robert, thank you very much. Pleasure to speak with you, Mark. Last month, President Obama visited Cuba, furthering the normalization of relations between the two countries. There's been a lot of talk about political exchanges, but cultural ones are starting to happen as well. And the Musical Instrument Museum in Phoenix is taking part. MIM is expanding its Cuba exhibit, and here to talk about it is Daniel Piper, curator for Latin America and the Caribbean. Hi, Daniel. Great to be here, Mark. So how exactly is MIM expanding its Cuba collection? Sure. So um, we have uh, a space for every country in the world in the museum. Uh, I spent uh, two trips to Cuba uh, in 2015 uh, working with a number of institutions, a lot of great artists there, uh, brought back a number of uh, historic, culturally important instruments. Uh, Now the exhibit has about 50 instruments or so. Um, There's a lot of video, uh, photography, text. uh, It's really uh, something that's uh, very unique, probably the largest uh, and most diverse collection within the United States. Was it harder before the thawing of relations to get instruments from Cuba and maybe to to hear from artists in, in that country? 
I would say it's uh, really actually has not, it's always been been difficult. Uh, I don't believe it's changed uh, too much, um, except there, there's more of a consciousness and an interest uh, in Cuba. Uh, but, uh, you know, working last year, there was a lot of uh, each and every instrument required sort of a high level official, you know, signature uh, to bring out of the country. So it was uh, it was quite a quite a project. Well, so how does the Cuba collection as it is now re- compare to other Latin American Caribbean countries exhibits that you have at MIM? Sure. Well, we have uh, our collection as a whole, you know, for the museum is about uh, 15,000 objects. There's maybe about 6,500 on display at any one time. Um, so we do have, uh, you know, a good display representative for each of the Latin American countries. Uh, I would say this is exhibit is really uh, now kind of the star exhibit for, for Latin America. And it's very important because Cuba has had such an impact musically on the rest of the world, on the rest of Latin America, and also in terms of relations with uh, American jazz and, and of course, salsa, which is, you know, uh, really came out of New York. Um, but is it based on Cuban music originally? Yeah. How would you describe Cuban music? I mean, you heard some, we heard some up-tempo music at the beginning. I think that's sort of, when people think about Cuban music, that's kind of what comes to mind. But I would imagine that it's fairly varied. Sure, there's a great, great variety of music. Um, you know, Cuba, on the one hand, uh, is known around the world for maintaining, um, you know, traditions from Africa. Um, so there's a number of sort of ritual drumming and singing traditions. Uh, some people may have heard of the word Santeria, which is a type of Afro-Cuban religion. Uh, some fantastic music associated with that. Um, but then there's, you know, music ranging from rumba, which is sort of a, you know, a street uh, festive type of dance music. Uh, then you have son, which if you if a lot of people may have heard of, um, you know, for example, the, the Buena Vista Social Club, which is a revival of that sound of son music from the 1930s. Um, but there's a whole range and there's some fantastic Cuban jazz and a, a lot of the top uh, Latin jazz uh, artists uh, touring the world today uh, are Cuban players. Have you found that visitors to MIM and maybe just music enthusiasts in general are becoming more aware of Cuban music and Cuban musical history now that the two countries are are beginning to talk again? There's certainly um, a lot of interest. Um, and uh, there's, a, you know, more when I was in Cuba last year, um, you know, there was definitely an upswing of, of uh, you know, American visitors. Um, there's also a lot of cultural tours happening there. At the time when I was there in December with the Havana Jazz Festival, there was, a, you know, a group of a number of uh, Americans uh, for that. Um, so there's a there's a curiosity, and it and it really kind of harkens back to a time, you know, before the Cuban Revolution, when Cuban music was popular around the world, and recordings of you know rumba and son and uh, in the Latin you know the dance bands from the 50s uh, were known um, you know throughout Latin America and the United States, and then then it's kind of been you know in some ways uh, um, forgotten the specific artists. Well, has I mean, did Cuban music evolve much during the time of of the revolution and when Americans didn't have as easy access to Cuba? Sure, it's interesting because uh, people think you know of of Cuba as a place where time has you know stood still. Yeah. I mean, you go and you think of the the buildings and the old cars the old and everything. Cars, yeah. you know. um, but uh, you know, Cubans ha- continue to be very curious, you know, and uh, were, were constantly, whatever way they possibly could, were listening to and absorbing and integrating music from the United States and other parts in Mexico and uh, other parts of the world into their own music. So um, yeah, I mean, if you listen to, to you know Cuban salsa, for example, which they call timba, uh, you know, it has a very different kind of rhythm and sound to it than than salsa coming out of the United States or Venezuela. 
Uh, and, uh, you know, other Cuban uh, rock and jazz and other genres have evolved, sure. So did Cuban musicians take more influence from American and other musicians during that time? I would imagine they did because we didn't really hear much of it because we couldn't get access to it, right? Mm. Uh, yeah, I would it, relatively speak. Exactly. There's been more influence of American music in Cuba since the revolution than, than the other way around. Uh, but, you know, the, the in, interplay, the influence has been there um, early, you know, from the 1920s. There was a very strong um, influence between, you know, U.S. jazz and, and Cuban music. Uh, and that's a big part of the story. Uh, you know, Dizzy Gillespie, for example, you know, uh, what, what is Latin jazz today? This, you know, American trumpet player uh, back in the 40s, you know, was playing with Cuban players in New York. He also traveled to Havana and there was a, there was a you know, very rich kind of creative, you know, uh, exchange there. So we have a we played some Cuban music earlier. We have a, another piece here. Let's uh, let's hear this piece right now. So in that piece, we heard some very prominent drumming, and you actually brought a, a drum. You brought some show and tell here. Unfortunately, it's the radio, but I'm not going to ask you to play it. But is this sort of a, a uh, common type of, of Cuban instrument that we might see if we if we see a music performance there? Yeah, actually, the, the piece you just heard, which was a rumba group, one of their most famous ones, Los Muñequitos de Matanzas, and we have four original pieces from that group. Uh, one of the instruments they play is a cajon. You might have heard of like a cajon, like a box drum, right? Uh, but the Cuban cajon they play for rumba is different because it has this, uh, you know, sort of tapered shape. Uh, and you play the, the top surface like you would a conga, you know, a typical uh, kind of Latin drum. Um, but it's amazing because it's, you know, they make it from everyday materials like even, you know, uh, wood from furniture parts. Um, so it's a very kind of homegrown instrument, uh, but it's amazing what the players uh, can do with it. So. And that looks pretty solid. That's not like balsa wood on top. That's like real, like real hardwood on top, right? The one I brought in here, so this, even though this instrument was made in Cuba, right, it's inspired uh, drum makers in the United States. So this is actually manufactured by a, uh, a U.S.-based percussion uh, company called Soul Percussion, uh, who make, you know, congas, they make uh, timbales, but they also make the, the Cuban cajon. Do you think that now that the U.S. and Cuba are normalizing their relations, I mean, do you expect to see more Cuban music influencing American music and music from other parts of the world as well, like like maybe we saw before the revolution? I believe gradually we will. Um, and there's certainly, you know, more uh, Cuban artists uh, today that are, you know, uh, able to travel. Um, and there's more artists that, that are touring. Uh, and, you know, many of them are, are very close uh, colleagues with, uh, you know, Puerto Rican, Dominican, Venezuelan, and also, you know, U.S. other U.S. Latino artists. Uh, so it's, uh, you know, time will tell, but uh, I certainly hope so. Is there something that you do not have in the Cuba collection right now at MIM that you would just love to get your hands on? The, uh, well, the first group that we heard is named Los, Los Bamban. Uh, and this is Cuba's kind of most famous uh, salsa group for the last uh, 50 years or so. Uh, I have been talking with uh, the, the founder of the group passed away about a year ago. I've been talking with the, the two sons who, who currently lead the group. And they're in the process of recollecting historic instruments from the 60s when this group started. Uh, and uh, very, very important group. And yes, we would love to have, you know, one of one form bases. Daniel Piper is curator for Latin America and the Caribbean at the Musical Instrument Museum in Phoenix. Daniel, thank you very much. Thank you.
And that's it for today. Thank you so much for joining us. If you missed any of today's program, you can listen to all of the interviews a bit later this afternoon at kjzz.org. Or better yet, you can download the free KJZZ mobile app and podcast the entire program at your convenience. Thank you so much to Sarah Ventry and Bruce Drummond for their help today. NPR's Here and Now from Boston is next on member-supported KJZZ, FM, Phoenix, and HD. I'm Mark Brody in Phoenix. It's 12 noon. KJZZ is supported by Mesa Arts Center, announcing the Johnny Clegg Band, South African guitarist and vocalist blending Western pop and African Zulu rhythms, Thursday, April 21st. Tickets and information at mesaartcenter.com.